Welcome back to Author Conversations, presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. I'm Johnny Foster. As I record this, it is August 29th, 2019, and I want to let everyone in Hurricane Dorian's path know that you are in our prayers and our thoughts. Today I'm talking with Tyler Boyd, who has written a new book about his great-granduncle, Senator Harry T. Byrne. You may know the famous story of Senator Byrne receiving a letter from his mother that led to his decision to cast a deciding vote for the ratification of the 19th Amendment. But that is just one part of the story of this statesman. Tennessee statesman Harry T. Byrne is available now. Tyler, thanks for joining me. Oh, glad to be on the podcast, Johnny. Thank you. No problem at all. And tell us why this week is important in relation to the book. Well, on uh, August 26th, 1920, it's 99 years ago, last Monday, the U.S. Secretary of State in Washington, D.C. certified the 19th Amendment to the United States Constitution, which had been ratified by Tennessee on August 18th, 1920. And what that amendment did was it recognized the right to vote for millions of American women. Because before 1920, very few women could vote in the United States. Some states would allow them to vote in primaries or vote for president or vote for city government. But for the most part, they couldn't vote at all. But with this amendment in 1920, every woman in the country was enfranchised on paper. Unfortunately, so I had some racist laws that prevented minority women from voting, but it was uh, something to celebrate, and it happened 99 years ago this week. And you were related to somebody who played a pivotal role. Would you like to tell us about that? Uh, yes, I'm one of the few souls fortunate enough to be a relative of the person who cast the deciding vote in Tennessee to ratify the 19th Amendment and make it national law. Harry Thomas Byrne was my great-granduncle. His younger brother, Jack Byrne, was my great-grandfather, and his mother, Feb Ensminger Byrne, was my great-great-grandmother. He was from Nyota, Tennessee, which is in McMinn County, about an hour between Knoxville and Chattanooga. When Tennessee called a special session to, to consider action on this amendment in August 1920, 35 states had ratified the 19th Amendment, and we needed one more to make it national law. And the Senate passed overwhelmingly, but the House was deadlocked 48 to 48 after votes to table the amendment to just put it off and to avoid the controversy till next year. When they had a vote on the merits of the amendment, meaning a straight up and down yes or no vote, my great-granduncle, Harry T. Byrne, cast the deciding vote, the tie-breaking vote, to ratify the amendment in the Tennessee House, and with that enfranchised millions of American women, proving that one person and one vote can make a difference. And, you know, most people probably know your uncle's name from uh, the story of his mother writing him a letter. Is that actually fact, that she wrote him a letter and it swayed his vote? Yes, that is true. There's been some uh, myths floating around out there that it was a letter of admonishment, which is not true. Um, she had noticed in the newspapers how close it was in the House, and although he had left home planning on voting for it, he got over there, and a lot of the 
elder statesmen were pressuring him to vote no, and he was receiving telegrams from back home in Bimini County that were lying to him, saying, we are overwhelmingly against this. You have to vote no. So he had sort of started to caucus with the anti-suffragists. Well, my great-great-grandmother, Feb Byrne, over the weekend of August uh, 14th and 15th, penned a letter to him, a seven-page letter in pencil at her Naota home. And then Monday morning, my great-grandfather, Jack Byrne, took it to the Naota post office to address it in ink because she wanted it addressed in ink. She was one for formalities, and she made sure he'd send it out on Monday. And then in the morning of Wednesday, August 18th, the morning of the vote, Harry T. Byrne received that letter at the state capitol from a House page. And when he read that letter, he read his mother's words. There's a few references to suffrage in the letter. It's mostly just chit-chat about family life back home in Nyota in Mittman County. But she says on page two, hurrah, I vote for suffrage and don't keep them in doubt. And a few pages later, she says, don't forget to be a good boy and this is helped Mrs. Cat with her rats, her rats. So she's the one that put rat in ratification because that was based oh, okay. on a political cartoon that was going around at the time. So when he read that letter and when the uh, roll calls were over with and they were going to have a, an actual vote on the merits, he knew that he had to vote yes or it was actually going to be killed in Tennessee, maybe even in the country because if Tennessee had rejected it, there's no telling when it would have been ratified. And momentum was slowing before the 1920 election, the big election, right after World War One, So he took his mother's advice, and he voted aye on the vote on the merits, changing the final count to 49 to 47. And the next day on the House floor, he defended the vote and told the story of his mother's letter and said, a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow. I think we all can agree with that. Yes. Well, how old were you when you first realized how big of a deal this was? I first heard the story in junior high, and I don't think it really hit me till I got to be older and I got to be voting age myself you know, after high school. And when I began this research, and I learned more than just the surface-level details, I learned about just how many people this affected, if you think about Excuse me. If you think about the majority of the country are women, they constitute a majority of voters. And for the longest time, for 150 some odd years of our history, they weren't able to vote except for very few instances and just a few states, mostly out west and up north. And as I continued researching this, I realized what a major impact it had. I've heard it described as the largest single democratizing event in the history of America, maybe even the world. If you think about the, the nations with more population than us, like China and India, not near as democratic as we are, especially China. So that's when it really hit me that this was just incredible. And it, and it proves that, that one person serving in government uh, can make a difference with their vote. And, you know, and he wasn't the first person in your family to taken an unpopular stance. I remember reading early on in your book about you having ancestors who, before the Civil War, were for the Union. And in eastern Tennessee, that was more common than in other parts of Tennessee. But still, that would have been a controversial stand to take in the Deep South. Yes, that's correct. Uh, McMinn County was split down the middle against woman suffrage 
I'd say maybe 55 against, 45-4. In the Civil War, it was the same way. McMinn County was just slightly in favor of the Union and the Byrne family were Unionists. But as you just said, the majority of Tennessee, especially West and Middle Tennessee, and even some of McMinn County's neighbors like Monroe County and Meigs County and Polk County, were all pro-Confederate. And Harry T. Byrne's great-grandmother, Mahala Byrne, she gave two of her sons uh, to fight for the Union and enslavery. They died uh, during the Civil War, and they came to the farm before the uh, Union took back over East Tennessee when the Confederates had control. The Confederate Army came to the farm in northern McMinn County and took a lot of her horses, and they had planned on taking the rest of her stuff, but thankfully they weren't able to before the war ended. So the Byrne family in 1920 with, with Harry T. Byrne's uh, deciding vote on a controversial issue was not unfamiliar territory for the family. They, they have always been a people who are <clears throat> courageous and stand up for what they believe in, even if it's not popular. And that brings me into my next question. Uh, so what lessons, habits, traits uh, did a young Harry learn in his life? that would leave him to become the man that he was. I believe he learned that serving in state government has just as much of an impact, if not more of an impact than serving in the U S Congress or as president or on the Supreme court. And those are the branches today and the level of government that gets all the attention, but our state county and city governments, have just as much of an influence on our daily lives and the laws and policies that govern us. And after this vote, he served one more term in the state house after a close reelection. And he continued his life in public service. He wasn't in one office for too long. He would uh, move into you know one position and then leave and go to another position. He was in the state Senate. He was a delegate to amend Tennessee's constitution four different times all the way into the 1970s. And he was in office at times, and he had amazing sense of timing. I still can't believe his keen sense of timing. He was always in office to make sure he was there to vote on issues that affected people in the state in positive ways. He was present when Tennessee voted to remove their poll tax long before the 24th Amendment did so nationwide. He was an early advocate of lowering the voting age to 18, although he didn't succeed in the Tennessee Constitution he did live to see it happen in 1971 when he was elderly. And he was also present to help Tennessee with its redistricting. You know, I'm sure a lot of folks out here, this may prick up their ears and they hear the word gerrymandering because you hear about that all the time with the U.S. Congress. Uh, Elbridge Jerry. Gerrymandering. Yes, Elbridge Jerry. Yeah, Elbridge Jerry, however it's pronounced. But uh, absolutely, the Tennessee state legislature, the state senate and state house seats were gerrymandered for the first half of the 20th century in favor, not so much of Democrats or Republicans, but in favor of rural areas versus urban areas. And he had tried twice in uh, the House and the Senate, 30 years apart, to try to get the state government to reapportion these districts to make them more fair, to make sure that it's a one-man, one-vote in the House, especially. The Senate's a little different with territory, but with the House especially. And in the 1960s, I'm sure a lot of constitutional scholars out there in history buffs have heard about the case Baker v. Carr, which is when the Supreme Court finally decided to start ruling on redistricting questions. That uh, decision came down in 1962 because uh, Carr lived in Shelby County, and he felt it was unfair that him living in Shelby County with 
half a million people have his representative had the same weight in his vote than someone living in a rural West Tennessee County with not even a hundred thousand people. So when the Tennessee constitutional convention, 1965 convened to address this issue, Harry T. Byrne was there. He, he committed himself to making sure he was present as a public servant to improve the Tennessee constitution and to fight for further civil rights and universal suffrage and just good, honest and clean government. And why did it take so long for Tennessee to have a new constitution all the way to the 1960s? Well, Tennessee didn't follow its own constitution. They've been operating under the 1870 constitution uh, for almost 150 years. And every convention since uh, 1870 has been limited. And in 1953, that was the first convention they'd had in 83 years, and they had three more all the way to 1971. But um, the constitution states in Tennessee, you have to reapportion your state legislature seats every 10 years. And they failed to do that. Yeah, they'd redraw some lines to get someone an advantage, but they didn't redraw it based on population changes. So from 1901 all the way to 1965, they were forced to act. You know, Knoxville, Chattanooga, Memphis, Nashville had exploded in population. And so had some parts of East Tennessee, like Oak Ridge and Maryville and Cleveland and Johnson City. But West and Middle Tennessee and the rural areas hadn't grown. And those legislators all those years refused to follow the Constitution and to reapportion the legislature because they knew they would lose a lot of their voting power. So for the longest time, the, the rural legislators who represented a small group of people were dominating state government. And Harry T. Byrne thought this isn't right, and even though this is going to uh, obviously affect my rural county of McMinn and later Roan County, it's not right, and we need to change this. And he was the voice of reason for people that just uh, didn't want to ch- follow their own state constitution until federal government finally, the Supreme Court made them act on it. Yeah, one of the things that really impresses me about your uncle is the fact that he was elected as representative, state representative, such a young age. And I don't know if people realize how young he was. Uh, what do you think led others to trust him at that age? When he was elected, November 5th, 1918, he was one week from turning 23 years old. And actually, had he um, been born one week sooner, he could have ran in 1916, but he wouldn't have because um, there wasn't an open seat. But in 1918, his mentor moved up to the state Senate, so the House seat in Mittman County was open. And he had always been a public man. These are Fed Burns' words. He said, my son had always been a public man. He had paid attention to the news, read newspapers and magazines, paid attention to politics. As a young boy, he knew the name of his district, his city, his governor, his congressman, all those things. And he always kept abreast of those things, was cognizant of all of these political issues. And he had got a lot of experience in the community working in uh, banking and hosiery and utilities because his father passed away in 1916 and he took over a lot of his father's positions for a little while, just temporarily. He got a lot of great experience, you know, sort of at a, at a community leader at a young age. And on top of that, the Byrne family had not only been staunch unionists since 1861, but they had also been staunch Republicans. So the Republican Party was more than happy to nominate Harry T. Byrne to run for that seat in 1918 August and then August or excuse me in November of 1918 he wins the election 
by a, a more than two to one margin at only uh, the tender age of 22. He was the youngest member of the uh, 1920 General Assembly, and the average age of most legislators at that time was about 60. <laughs> wow. Yes. <laughs> so, I mean, so even early on in his career, the 19th Amendment, this was the second constitutional amendment he's voted on, correct? That's correct. That's something I didn't know until I began my research, and I felt kind of uh, stupid because I should have realized it sooner, but it just never got the attention because I was thinking about 1920, which is a special session. Now, Tennessee legislators meet every year in the spring, but at this time, they met every other year on odd-numbered years. So in the uh, session that lasted from January to April of 1919, his very first time in public office, the Prohibition Amendment, the 18th Amendment, was ratified. I believe it was, his, if I recall correctly, his first week in the legislature. Now wow. that had been that had been um, that had been a long time coming because you had all sorts of prohibitions on alcohol and things like that at the state and local level for decades. But in 1918, the U.S. Congress uh, earlier that year, before he was ever running for office, U.S. Congress overwhelmingly proposed the 18th Amendment to the state's ratification. And then in January 1919, Tennessee voted, I believe, 85 to to seven, with seven members either not there or abstaining from voting, in favor of this, and he was one of them. And he had he voted for it uh, because the Byrne family had also been, uh, I won't say prohibitionists, but they were certainly uh, teetotalers. They weren't big drinkers. Uh, Mahala Byrne, I mentioned earlier, the staunch Union uh, widow and matriarch. Her husband Adam, who died before the Civil War, was just a terrible drunk. So Harry T. Byrne grew up hearing stories from his grandfather and his father about his uh, drunk great-grandfather. So it was no surprise to me to learn that when he had the chance to ban alcohol on a national level, he took it and voted in favor of it. And it wasn't even controversial. It wasn't even afterthought for him or most people. <laughs> yeah, I, I knew that it had taken up a, the temperance movement. was pretty much the call of the land at that point in time for that to occur. What were the other two amendments? Yes. Well, he voted for the 18th and 1919 and the 19th and 1920. Well, many years later, and unfortunately for him, he wasn't able to be in government to vote for the repeal of the 18th Amendment with the 21st Amendment. And that was actually done by uh, conventions, the only time it's ever happened. And he wasn't running for delegate. But in the state Senate, in his second and final term in 1951, representing McMinn, Monroe, Bradley, and Polk counties in southeast Tennessee, the 22nd Amendment finally came up for a vote in Tennessee. Now, this amendment placed term limits on the President of the United States to two terms or 10 years in office. Now, this amendment, I noticed in my research, did not get a lot of uh, fanfare in the Newspapers. I'm talking about the national newspapers, New York Times. A lot of these papers barely even made a big deal about it. But really, I didn't know that either. On, That's really interesting, too. Yeah, it's an amendment to the federal constitution. You think it'd make a big deal, but I think they took it as a slight to President Franklin Roosevelt. So mm. President Roosevelt was beloved, as we all know, and he was elected to four terms. But when he passed away or after his fourth election, a lot of people on both sides of the political aisle thought if he did – in their opinion, did a great job as president. But what if someone gets in there and he isn't doing a good job and he isn't in good health 
and things turn out bad for us. We need to have limits. So in 1946, the Republican Party took back over the U.S. Congress, and they proposed the amendment. So yes, that was kind of a partisan thing. However, if you examine the way the states ratified the amendment over the next four years, it took a little longer than most amendments do. It was actually a bipartisan thing because that amendment not only passed in FDR's home state of New York, it also passed every southern legislature, and FDR was beloved in the American South. And Tennessee um, voted on it in February of 1951, and I found in the uh, Senate Journal, it was Harry T. Byrne himself as the minority leader of the Republicans, their floor leader. He made the motion in the state Senate on that day to vote on the 22nd Amendment, and it easily passed the Democrat-dominated uh, state Senate. So after that, he had three federal constitutional amendments under his belt for Banning alcohol, allowing women to vote, and putting limits on the presidency of the United States. So three very different things, but I have to give him credit for being there to vote on those things because that's that's quite remarkable. <laughs> so did he face any opposition in his personal life for his beliefs where there were people in the you know home county who was against him, people in his family? Because I know if you live a public life, you know – you're going to have people come against you, but you also can have people you know privately who would come against you. Yes, his 1920 vote for the 19th Amendment almost cost him re-election. Now, like I said, the majority of Amendment County was against it, but not by much. So I believe in my research, I have a lot of evidence. Um, of course, there's no polling back then, but I believe that um, there were about 900 uh, women in, ten in uh, Mid County, Tennessee, who were registered to vote. And I don't think all of them actually voted that day because there were issues, you know, with their husbands or things like that getting to the polls. But I think that made the difference for him. I think that hundreds of women going to vote flipped it to where you had um, he won re-election with 54% of the vote over his opponent, who was anti-woman suffrage. So I think that really made the difference. And the Chattanooga newspaper, the Chattanooga Times, who was actually owned. Um, by a man named uh, or published by a man named Adler, um, they ran a grueling, vicious campaign against him trying to get a vote out of office. And after he was reelected, both the Democrat and Republican newspapers here in Minn County, the Athenian and the Athens Post, who later merged, um, they were celebrating his reelection and they were just relishing in the fact that the Chattanooga paper failed to unseat Harry T. Byrne and. When he came home, he doesn't. He didn't fear anyone would hurt him, and no one tried to hurt him. Now, not everyone agreed. Some people thought, are you not scared, Harry? No, I'm not scared. Well, his mother's cousin, a man named uh, Will Snyder, a few of his nephews still live in Iota, such a nice elderly gentleman, um, he actually carried around a hammer because he was a blacksmith. He carried around a hammer every time Harry would give a speech during his re-election campaign in case someone tried to hurt Harry. But no one did, thankfully. I think that kind of disappointed Will, <laughs> but... Uh, he was uh, um, just trying to protect his cousin there, which I appreciate. But as he went through life, um, especially here in East Tennessee, he was always highly respected for his vote for women's suffrage. And um, I didn't find any evidence that anyone had ever um, held a grudge against him for that. But some other things he did when he was in the state Senate, that ruffled some feathers, and it almost cost him re-election. But once again, he was re-elected. But uh, some of his prohibitionist tendencies came out again, some of his legislation, and he was – he was trying to do a lot of things to help 
communities grow, expand city limits and things like that. And that didn't always match up with what the community wanted. They wanted to keep their town small. So he, he was one to cause controversy, usually for good reason, but sometimes, you know, you may disagree, but he didn't shy back. He did not shy away from controversy. There's no doubt about that. And I think that's something to be admired. And do you think that if it wasn't for in his early career with his mother writing that letter, because you had talked earlier about he kind of started to go to the other side until he got that letter that he might not have ended up being the man and the politician that he was? I believe that if he hadn't got to cast his vote or if he hadn't got this letter, I still believe he would have been in public service, but whether or not he would have had the notoriety and the name recognition to take him as far as it did, uh, that's up in the air. I don't know. He I mean, he served in the state Senate. He was a delegate to four state constitutional conventions, and um, those still might have happened. I don't know, but I don't think he would have run for governor. I mean, he he was trying to utilize his political capital when he ran for governor 10 years later in 1930. Of course, he didn't win. He didn't come close, but I don't think he would have even tried to run had he not become famous for his deciding vote. But I think we would, I think if he hadn't voted for this and hadn't got famous from this, I believe he still would have been a public servant um, trying to do the right thing, but he would never become a household name and maybe wouldn't have risen quite to the prominence that he did without his vote for suffrage. When you're doing your research, what most surprised you? Did you have anything that just jumped out at you that you were completely surprised about? I was surprised by so many things about, like I said, the two amendments he voted for that, that weren't for women's suffrage for prohibition term limits. And I was surprised at what went into those conventions to change Tennessee's constitution. I had known that because it's on his historical marker near his tombstone. I never knew what would end of that. I, mean, I was so surprised to learn that his civil rights advocacy did not stop in 1920, um, supporting the end of the poll tax and lowering the voting age. And I was surprised to learn about his foresight, I probably have to. If I had to pick one, that'd be my top surprise. Was his was his foresight? There was a community in Roan County, which is about uh, a half hour west of Knoxville, and he predicted that this one region in, the, in that county would become a major industrial and business center, and he even got to name it. And I never knew that. And I'd driven by that place called Midtown on I-40 several times in my life. Never knew he named it till I spoke to one of his elderly. Uh, attorney friends, you know, thankfully still with us. And um, his timing, uh, like I said, his timing was incredible, but his his foresight too, he knew that they had to address the reapportionment issue where he was going to come back to bite them with it. And it did because of Becker versus Carr, a Supreme Court decision. And um, he really was a forward thinking person. You know, he advocated for widening the street in Sweetwater, which is just north of Nyota. And he advocated for building a, a bridge over a uh, nuclear power plant, one of the only ones left in the area, over uh, Waspar Lake and Tennessee River between Meigs and Ray counties. And I just never knew um, his foresight to not only for great political ideals, but also just to help develop and grow his communities. I, that was something I, I was enjoyed discovering, and I, I was so surprised to learn, even myself, being you know a history buff and a you know government teacher i was surprised to learn just how much of an impact if you dig really deep that state legislators and uh state constitutional convention delegates have on our life 
because like I said, everyone's got their eye on Washington, although it's very important. A lot of important things happen in your, your home state and your home county and city as well, and he realized that. History and government starts locally. Absolutely. I believe Tip O'Neill, Speaker of the House during Ronald Reagan's presidency, said all politics is local, and he's correct. Absolutely. Thanks for taking time out of your day to um, come and talk to us about your book. Oh, I, I really enjoy being on the podcast, and I thank you for the invite. Thank you also for joining us for this edition of our Thank you also for joining us for this edition of Arthur Conversations presented by Arcadia Publishing and the History Press. 